Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. What did you do on New Year's Eve, Mark? (laughs) Well, in, in my defence, I had just taken uh, the son and his girlfriend and our granddaughter to, to Gatwick and got back quite late. But do you know what we did after eight days or so of a house full of, uh, of people? We were just a little bit knackered and we collapsed on the sofa, Dave. And I'm afraid to say we went to bed at 11 o'clock. Is that all right? Is that allowed? We did. We were knackered and we just... And I've decided now that going to bed at 11 o'clock on New Year's Eve, because we used to have very strict rules about New Year's Eve anyway, which is you can only really go to neighbours where you can walk home. Because going anywhere, travelling anywhere on New Year's Eve is a nightmare, don't you think? Definitely, definitely. And you can't drink and you can't drive a car and all that sort of stuff, if you're going to drive a car. So the plan was to stay at home and we found something at 11 o'clock in bed and listening to, which is one of my favourite sounds, it's the sound of fireworks and revelry when you're not actually out there. Just the sound of distant fireworks. Other people letting off fireworks. Very attractive. I always How about find, you? I always find it interesting with fireworks. You can never tell how far away they are, can you? No. It always sounds as if they're in the next garden, but they can't be because you look out and you can't see them in the next garden. They could be five miles away. You have absolutely no clue at all. Well, listen, I'm, I'm, I take my hat off to you for staying up to 11 because <laughs> we, we were long you peaked earlier before then. Yeah, we had a very nice meal and a couple of glasses of wine and we put on a Hitchcock film and then fell asleep in front of it, you know, just like you do. What old duffers we are. But there's something very attractive, you know, the log fire, the coal fire, <sighs> being at home and hear, hearing other people outside, re- revelry, shouting, drunkenness. Oh, that's great. I love it. I love the sound of it. I'm just, just happy to be at home. Because I've decided that there is nothing more oppressive in life than enforced jollity. 
And New Year New Year's Eve is is in forced jollity, isn't it? Because you've well, got to stay there to midnight. Well, the rhythm of it is is completely wrong because normally you would have peaked by kind of whatever ten o'clock, be heading home, whatever. But the idea that you've got to keep it going oh. and that thing, oh, the chimes oh. tuning in the radio now, and the whole ritual of. And also there's something about kind of assessing last year and looking forward to next year, which is complicated, isn't it? Yeah, and it doesn't suit is. the dynamic of a party, really. So it's not my favourite party. I love a party, but not New Year's Eve. Sorry. No, okay, fair enough. So um, anyway, 50 years ago this month, it's quite interesting uh, month for releases uh, of albums. It's 50 years ago, 50, count of 50 years since the release of a record. I'll just reach for, I've got it in my hand here, which is Bob Dylan and the Bands. Well, they called it Before the Flood, didn't they? The, the live album from his tour of the United States or their tour of the United States the previous year. Because both, both the tour and the album were a really, really big deal, weren't they? You know, because they'd they'd got back together again on a new record label in the in the United States because it was on Asylum, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, and Planet Waves had come out. They made that album between the two of them together, which is the only Bob Dylan and the band record, isn't it? Apart from Basement Tapes, is that right? It's the I only think time, that's right. yeah, that they actually made an album with the band, and. Uh, so he goes and does this enormous tour of the United States, which I think in many ways was a kind of template for loads of tours that followed, which was the interesting thing about this. It's a double album, and he's, he was touring ostensibly to promote Planet Waves, and he doesn't play a single song oh, from Planet Waves. Which, which, you know, Reminds me of the time you saw him in 1986. Do you remember that when you interviewed him for Q? And he, 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 that was in New York the day, the very day that Knocked Out Loaded came out. I think it was Knocked Out Loaded, was it? Yes, I think it was. And, um, and he went on stage and didn't play a single Not song. Not one single song from it. <laughs> and you were there with the record company, weren't they? All just hanging their heads. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it's, it's kind of interesting in that it's the first big tour, which was just never mind what my new record is. Just come and celebrate me and my extraordinary career. And uh, it was one of the first tours that I remember being a really, really hot ticket. Do you remember that in the United yeah. States, people? Everybody had to go to it, you know. And so, so many tours have been like that since, you know, that they're all about celebrations of, of one particular artist. Uh, and everybody going along and celebrating their devotion to this artist. And you remember, of course, you'll remember what's on the cover of this album, Bob Dylan and the Band, Before the Flood. What's on there? Lots of people holding up candles. Lots of people holding up, well, lighters. lighters, They would be lighters in those days. Yeah, yeah, it was the iPhone of its time, that's right. Absolutely. Whereas nowadays... Did you see that picture that was um, all over the internet the other day after on New Year's Day um, of uh, taking down the, the, the Champs-Élysées in Paris where they had the, the clock uh, above the Arc de Triomphe counting down. I think it was Arc de Triomphe. I think it was, yeah. Counting down to the, you know, the turn of the year. 
And and all you can see in front of it is millions of sc- little screens of people taking a picture. Taking the least the cl- memorable picture imaginable. <laughs> Which they will never look at again. They'll never look at it again, but you have to take a picture to somehow convince yourself and your friends that you actually were present, which is ridiculous. Well, it also is ridiculous. Memorable. What were you doing in the moment? I was taking a picture. Taking of a photograph. I.e. were not in the moment. Yeah. So that's Bob Dylan and the band before the flood. And do you know what record came out the very same day, 50 years ago, first week in January? Joni Mitchell's Corn oh, Spark. Spark. Which is extra, it's kind of extraordinary. The records came out the first weeks in the new year, which they don't do any any longer. You know, they come out whatever time they can, uh, you know, best, ma- most maximise the sales. Oh, I Whereas, think it makes sense, because doesn't that give you more of a chance of getting a number one placing, because the record sales well, are down in January. It, it, it always what the Pretenders did with their first album, didn't they? No, they did. The they did December. No, they did it with singles. They always did. Clive Banks, who was the, who was the Pretenders plugger, always believed he put a single out, and it was out for the first week of the new year, because radio had nothing new to play. Radio wanted to get rid of all the Christmas records, and so they would welcome without arms anything that was new. So he did it with singles, not so much with albums. But Court and Spark came out the same day as Bob Dylan's uh, Bob Dylan and the band Before the Flood, and also in the first quarter of 1974, fifty years ago, Van Morrison's "It's Too Late to Stop Now" recorded the previous year all over the place, including. I just dug that out from the actual other rainbow. Fantastic record. Did you listen to me? Because I'm on that record. You can hear me. You can hear you in the crowd. You can hear him. Fact, shouting for what? Shouting for Terry Terry Adams, the cello player. No, that he's was... going, going, cheer up, you curmudgeon. You know, yeah. um, no, <laughs> what was a quite, great record. He was quite cheerful in those days, actually. That uh, great verse of I Believe to My Soul. Bring It On Home to Me by Sam Cooke. It's a great record. It's a really good record. But also, Weren't you the- in love with Terry Adams? Sorry, Dave. Oh, everybody remember, was. Everybody yeah. was. The picture of him is just the cello player with the waist-length blonde hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, in the first quarter of that year, Pretzel Logic by Tilly Down. Can you believe that? Pretzel Logic by Tilly Down, which we're only talking about yesterday, because yesterday we recorded a chat with Joel Selvin in San Francisco. And Joel Selvin, who we talked to in the past, um, is just bringing out a book about the tragic story of the drummer Jim Gordon, who you've heard heard on Millions of Records, session player and a member of Derek the Dominoes and Delaney and Bonnie's band and and many others. And... um, and tragically, um, in severe mental health problems, and uh, and was uh, put in a secure facility for the rest of his life after killing his mother. Anyway, that's all cheerful stuff, which you can look forward to hearing more about <laughs> when it's published in the next few days. Anyway, we're talking to Joel, and uh, and one of the many great things Jim Gordon did was play the drums on "Ricky Don't Lose That Number" by Steely Dan. Which is, of course, the first the first track of Pretzel Logic. Yes, it is. We have to. Isn't that one of the great sides of an album? Ricky Dan lose that number. Night by night. Any major dude. Barrytown and East St. Louis Toodaloo. Those five in a row. That is fantastic, isn't it? The nerve of doing East St. Louis Toodaloo is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Really. Um, 
that uh, well, they wanted to assert their kind of jazz credentials, didn't they? Their chops, I think. But to pastiche it that accurately, astonishing. That's brilliant. And so also in the first three months of 1974, 50 years ago, 50 years ago, Graham Parsons' Grievous Angel, Graham Parsons' Grievous Angel, that's the second Graham Parsons. Well, it was the last Graham Parsons album. I don't know, was he dead by then? Was he dead when he came out? I can't remember. Uh, Big Star's Radio City. That's a wonderful uh, record. Todd Rundgren's Todd. Uh, the double album, it was his second double album, wasn't it? Is that the one that contains the Gilbert and Gilbert and Sullivan thing, the Lord Chancellor's Nightmare song? <laughs> oh, <laughs> is it? I don't really know Talk, that. Yeah. Talking strange things done on record. Talking is pretty much like Easton Louis Toulouse being done by Stevie Dan. Yeah, and and Frank Zappa's apostrophe. Which I think Jim Gordon also played the drums on, didn't he? He did. I think he, he did, it, yes. On a post-print. Incredible record. Uh, Uncle Remus. That one of Frank Zappa's high, high points, don't you think? Do you remember that song? Written with George Duke. It's all about Trustafarian kids. In uh, It's a little satire. It's about Trustafarian kids living on the bank of mum and dad in Los Angeles. And their pathetic sense of rebellion. All about how they're growing their afros. They've got their do-rags. <laughs> yeah, the chorus goes something like, I'll go to Beverly Hills just before dawn and I'll knock the little jockeys off the rich people's lawns. People used to have lawn jockeys. Oh, remember? yes, that's true. And before they get up, I'll be gone. And that was just <laughs> such a brilliant idea. These were kids who were going to go, little hippies who were going to go on to be, you know, uh, chief executives of uh, of hedge funds later on in life. It's fantastic. My problem with Frank Zappa's funny stuff is I can't listen to it more than once. I always just want more. Basically, I want one thing from Frank Zappa and one thing only. And do you know what it's it? What it is, Mark? More, well, hot, more hot rats. More That's hot rats. Like, more hot rats. More peaches on regalia is what I want. Just more of those beautiful instrumentals that kind of sound like. Slightly zany TV theme tune. Yes, they do. They've gone slightly yeah. psychedelic at the edges. That's what I love about Frank Zappa. The humour, I can, I can kind of take it or leave it, but anyway. So that's just an example of just a, a handful of the, of the extraordinary records that came out 50, count of 50 years ago. You know, so if you've gone back 50 years before 1974, I mean, you know... Recording as we know it's hardly invented. No, what would it be? The original Dixieland Jazz Band. I suppose so, yeah. yeah. And that's pretty much on cylinder, isn't it? That yeah. kind of thing. Um, so talking of the new year, you, Michael Evis has been what, knighted? Is that right? He has been knighted, yes. I mean, not before time, surely, don't you think? <laughs> I think he's done all right at her life, hasn't he? He I mean, has done all right. I don't know. Okay, I've got nothing against the chat and so forth. But the question I want to ask you, Mark, is, um, you know, have you turned down a knighthood? <laughs> uh, several times. Okay. <laughs> Not for me. How about you? Have you? I mean, uh, OBE, MBE? Have I been offered? Have you been offered yet? No, I've not been offered. Now, my question to you is, if you were offered, would you take it? Well, yes, wouldn't you? Yes. I would have thought so. Absolutely. I I had a look at this yesterday. 11 people, 11 musicians have been offered uh, uh, Queen's Honours and have turned them down. Yeah, but that's, can I just interject? 
those are the 11 that have that have taken great efforts to tell everybody. To tell you, so there must be many more. <laughs> there probably, well, there may be many more, there may not. I don't, I don't know. But I just think the great, you see, because if you, if you decided you were going to turn down this thing, the, the, the thing you would then have to address yourself to is, how do I let people know I've turned these things down? Because that's you're claiming a bigger honour, isn't it? Aren't you? You know, oh, yeah. you've turned it down. Well, it'd be a damn waste if nobody knew, wouldn't it? Really? And uh, so you're eleven. Are just the people who've told us about it. Shall so I tell they? you, they are. Go on. Nitin Sawney. All right. Objected to our colonial past. Didn't want anything <laughs> with the name Empire. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. David Bowie said, I seriously don't know what it's for. It's not what I spent my life working You see, for. there you go. It's a statement. You know, it's a statement. Oh, it is completely. <laughs> John Lydon, big thing. Nope, not interested. Paul Weller. The quote was, Paul was surprised and flattered, but it wasn't really for him. Humphrey Littleton. This is amazing. Humphrey Littleton turned one down. Because right. he's a very modest guy and just didn't want any attention, but he couldn't bear to tell his mother that he'd been offered it and turned it down because knew, he knew how upset she'd be. Quite. George Melly turned one down to protest against Blair. Brian Eno turned one down, gave no reason at all. Uh, the rapper Skepta, who won the Mercury Prize, again, Nigerian Heritage, Colonial Britain, and John Pandit of the Asian Dub Foundation. Didn't want to be a member of the British Empire. Oh, and Keith Richards. Well, Keith Richards is a classic example, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Keith Richards turned it down and made an absolute song and dance like that, how ludicrous it was. Which was a kind of anti Mick Jagger statement. Of course it is. Of course. Mick, Jagger, Mick Jagger can have one, but I'm not going to. Absolutely. I still find that whole thing, you know, about referring to Rod Stewart as Sir Rod Stewart and so yeah. forth. I find that it's, stuff impossible. It's ridiculous. I can't, but it's ridiculous. Because if you're Paul McCartney, you don't need to be Sir Paul McCartney. You really because don't. you're bloody Paul McCartney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like being Sir James Bond. It's kind of yeah. stupid. <laughs> it's utterly, you know, it, it's unnecessary, isn't it? Really? No, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But they tend to say that in the United States, don't they? Where they're still, despite it being God knows how many centuries since having, you know, gained independence. They're absolutely obsessed with all things royal and all things pertaining to honour. Oh, yeah, they love it. They absolutely love it. They love it. It was the great, it's like Ed Sullivan's introduction to the Beatles on, in 1964. The thing that really got him was that they'd been honoured by their queen. Isn't absolutely, that right? Absolutely. That was the thing that really impressed him, that they were well-behaved pillars of society, a great example to use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas, um, yes, um, so, you know, I, if anybody wants to offer me any honour, I'll take it, frankly. You know, anything at all. I have no shame. <laughs> the Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. We had the very sad news this week that an old pal of ours who was the ad director of Smash Hits and went on to be the ad director with Nick Logan of the Face and Arena and Frank and various other magazines had died. A wonderful, wonderful old pal of ours and great hero of ours, wasn't he, Dave? <laughs> Called Rod Sop. S-O-P-P. I heard him say that on the phone millions of times. Tell him it's Rod Sop, S-O-P-P. <laughs> That's right. And when he would ring up, he'd always say, he'd always, a little bit of a space has opened up. Yeah. Your lucky day. Now's a chance for a cheap quarter, maybe a half. Absolutely, Absolutely fantastic guy. He was an old mod and uh, had been a friend of Rod Stewart's, hadn't he? He used to talk about going to see the Gino Washington band at, uh, at the Lyceum Ballroom in his tonic suit. 
with Rod Stewart. He always used to say it was immensely tight, didn't he? <laughs> and he, he loved was... material. If you went out and bought some clothes, you'd come back and he'd always take the piss out of me because my clothes were so frightful. He would say, uh, oh, lovely, lovely. Henry, we used to call me Henry, which is my middle name. All right, Henry. I used to call him Bunsworth. Was really yeah, Rodney Bunsworth. Bunsworth. <laughs> <laughs> we thought we'd give him this kind of sort of faux P.G. Woodhouse title, you know. And he would say, oh, that's lovely. And he would feel the quality of the sleeve of the jacket. He said, is there a little bit of cashmere in there? He said, oh, oh maybe not. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, you, what, you, have, you have to imagine, listeners, you know, the, the, there was a period, and it wasn't a very long period, two or three years or something. In in the beginning of Smash It, so it starts in, well, it starts in 1980, probably something like that. And goes about about three years before we're we're all doing different things, but but three years with me, Mark, um, Rod Sop, Steve Bush, Ian Birch, Neil Tennant, Bev Hillier, David Vostok, whatever, and it's such a formative time, incredible time, <laughs> and and it is one that I've realised now, all these years later. There are just tiny bits of your life that absolutely you remember in, in pin sharp clarity, whereas you don't the other bits. You know that bit I do. I do too. And, I wonder why. And that and, is. and so does. If you were to to ask Neil Tennant or you ask Ian Birch or Bev or anybody, they would all say the same thing. It was kind of like. School and university and all those things, yeah. you know, rolled into one. And Rod was the key character, if you like. You know what I mean? You know, we're all just a bunch of people trying to make our way. I'm very thrilled that it was going as well as it was going and so forth. But Rod was slightly older, you know, probably only three or four years older, but it, it seemed a lot seemed older, a lot. Yeah. which it often does. It seemed a different time. generation. It seemed a dif- different generation. And he'd come along, he'd come along because he used to be the ad manager of Popular Motoring, and uh, uh, which was owned by the same company. And when they'd launched Smash Earth, they had no fault about advertising at all, really. They just thought, get it out there, see if it sells, and then we'll worry about advertising later. Well, of course, it did sell, and so they had to worry about advertising, so they wanted somebody. And somehow, Rod got this gig. And I remember Nick Logan, who was, of course, the person who started Smash It, saying to me, he said, they've got this guy in to sell ads. He said... He claims he's a mate of Rod Stewart. God, you know, I always thought Nick had got him in. That's no, 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 no. Okay. No, no, came from somewhere else in email. And there was Rod, this, Rod would arrive um, wearing, you know, slightly kind of, slightly more chic clothing. Than oh, yeah, but. a long belted coat. Uh, he would he would turn up and he had a man bag. He's the only yep. person I was ever considered a friend who yep. had a man bag. And the things within his man bag were mainly smoking paraphernalia because he spent all the day rolling roll-ups and then smoking them on the telephone and then wandering around the office taking the mickey out of absolutely everybody. And he was like a character out of Houston films. He was like a minor character out of Minder. You know, he had a quite a bit of that kind of George Cole banter about him. A little know? bit wide, 
a little bit, and also also capable of expressions, which I, I we, you and I can st- we're still we still quote Absolutely. some of his jokes. One of the funniest jokes, in fact, I possibly think the funniest joke I've ever heard was his description of thin people. He'd say he's so thin he has to run around in the shower to get wet. <laughs> He'd say, he's so thin, he daren't walk over drains. Do you yeah, remember that? He had to pass a place twice to cast a shadow. <laughs> um, he just, he had a line for absolutely every occasion. And should we do he, the, the rest he, he the rare steak? He is the person who named everybody. He did with you. You, you became Mark Henry Allen. Yeah. Which, of course, Henry is your middle name, which I'm not giving away any secrets there. And um, and so, which then became abbreviated to Henry. Um, Peter Strong was the publisher, was Big Potato. That's right. Uh, I was the editor, so I was called Top of the Heap, occasionally abbreviated to Topo. That's right. Uh, and Ian Birch... And I'm sure he was the first person to call Ian Birch Birchy, yeah. which we still call him to this to day. To this day. To, to this, this day. day. And Rod did absolutely all that. He put his stamp on absolutely every every person around him uh, in a way that we've never forgotten. And, you know, I, I, I sent a note to his daughter this week, who I've never met, and I'd say... I don't think I've seen your father for 20 years. But there is not a week goes by that I don't think about. There really is. It was just Jimmy. so funny, wasn't it? I, I mean, those a lot of what he said now is slightly, uh, Kelly, uh, not not very PC, but the, remember the joke about the estate agents? He was oh. looking for a new house, he said, with his wife, Jenny. He said, uh, we're going around this new house, and the estate agent says, the dishwasher will go in here in the kitchen. And uh, he says, "Poor old Jim was rather hoping to have a bedroom." Rather, <laughs> rather, he, his sense of his sense of uh, rhythm, comic rhythm, and timing was absolutely impeccable. The key thing in that expression there is the use of the word "rather." Yeah. Jim was rather happy, hoping to have a room of her own. That's rather, rather, rather absolutely. We used perfect. to go to this little cafe uh, just off of Carnaby Street at lunchtime. Every and he'd have a little a little minute steak where it was, you know, and he'd say, and they'd say, "How do you want your steak?" And he had the same routine every day. <laughs> instead of saying, oh god, oh god, it's so funny. Instead of saying, "I'd like a rare steak," he'd say, "Just break its horns off, wipe its ass, and slap it on the plate." And then when, when the steak arrived, oh, the other thing he used to say was, uh, "Still, how do you like your steak?" Still screaming for its mother. And, <laughs> When the steak arrived, he used to kind of theatrically lean in towards the table, didn't he? Cupping an ear and go, do I hear lowing? And he'd say, a good vet could have that back on its feet in 10 minutes. Oh, God. Oh, my God. God. I'm laughing more now than I did then. I know. So brilliant. Absolutely. Anyway, he's a very good ad man. And, um, you know, so he he built up Smash Hits into a, a big ad proposition. And then went on to do the same thing with the face and arena and so arena forth, with with Nick, um, that, you know. So we loved him dearly, uh, as man. as did everybody who who worked on Smashes in those days. Uh, I saw the Dylan Jones about him the other day. He worked with him obviously at uh, the face and arena and stuff. And Dylan seems to remember another old Rod Stop gag, which is that uh, somebody once said to him, "How many people work here?" And his answer was. About half of them. 
<laughs> it's still, so funny. You don't see it anymore, but um, you know, if I ever I see people with a, a lot of cash, um, you go to the races or something like that. He used to talk about, oh, I go to the races with a wad big enough to choke, to a, choke donkey. a donkey. <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> so good. Oh, God. Rod Sop. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. So you've watched Mr. Bates versus the post office, the uh, dramatization of the tragic story of the post office, I don't know, what we call it, Scandal, um, starring Toby, Toby Jones. You watched it all, haven't you? I think we watched it. We might have missed one of the episodes, I think, but we watched, I think we watched at least three of them, you know, and uh, you couldn't take more than 20 minutes, could you? And I can understand why. This I, is I, a, I, took, a, I took 20 minutes, I, uh, probably not even that long. And uh, shall I tell you why? I just had to turn it off. Because as I find, as I get older, my tolerance for, for for the kind of dramatic depiction of human sadness just reduces all the time. And shall I tell you why? <laughs> and I, I can't remember if I mentioned this to you the other week, that I'd reread Len Dayton's book, Bomber, which is a very good book about a, um, a bombing raid British bombing raid during the Second World War and about the tragic consequences for the people on the ground and the people in the plane. Um, and this is a book that I'd read when I was, I don't know, about 30. And at the time I thought, this is a good book. <coughs> and, uh, and you know, finished it, set it aside. You pick it up again all these years later and you think, I'm not sure I can read this because I can imagine now I can imagine the misery. You know what I mean? Whereas when I was 30, when you're 30, 
things just it's like water off a duck's back. No, you yeah. it doesn't sink in that deep. It does, does nothing it? nothing sinks in when you're 30. That's the you truth. You don't have you haven't developed that thin skin sensitivity. and sensitivity. Absolutely. And do you know what get what, what is the start of this? Certainly in my experience, is parenthood. Yeah. I don't know if I can remember, you know, before I had kids, you would hear about and the very occasional terrible tragedy befalling children or families or whatever. And I was always aware my own parents would uh, wince when they'd hear this stuff on the, on the news or whatever. And you don't do that until you've got children of your own. No, and then you suddenly think, how would you feel if it happened to you? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, goodness me. And uh, and so that applies to loads and loads of things. So you know, when you when you're thirty, you, it's it's all water off ducks back. And all the years later, so again, moving forward to Mr. Bates versus the post office, and the first fifteen minutes is about the the terrible tr- things befalling these people who are postmasters, whatever. Um, the widest miscarriage of justice yeah, in British legal history. They're saying just appalling. Yeah. And uh, and you're thinking. You want me to look at actors doing, you know, depicting human misery. I don't think I can do it, really, because they're actors, really. You know, I ought to, if I'm going to watch anything, I ought to go and watch the documentary because I don't need actors to persuade me to feel about this thing because you just have to tell me about it. What I find is I get older, I can imagine misery. I really can imagine it. I don't have any difficulty imagining mis- misery at all. I don't need to con- be reliving it all the time in order to to uh, you know, improve my imagination about it. My interest in the post office story is what really happened, you know, from from both sides. Because, you know, I'm, I'm assuming nobody in the post office set out to cause Human misery. <laughs> no, but I don't think that side of it is that well spelt out. Obviously, the the, the, the side of the uh, of the people, the people the who suffered from this miscarriage, yeah, yeah. the victims, that's very well mapped out, and and that's difficult because, as you can imagine, uh, we know what the result will be, and that the result is yes, they did win this court victory, but I mean, it's still lumbering on. Isn't and at it? what people, cost? Yeah, at what cost? And you know, terrible, um, uh, you know, suffering all around and loss of life and, you know, people went to jail. Oh, There's a bit where one of the guys at the very end comes out and he'd, been, he'd spent 13 years wrongly imprisoned for this uh, for this supposed fraud. And he says, well, now you won. Would you like to see the people in the post office go to jail? And he said, I've had 13 years in jail and, uh, you know, n- nothing would, would make no. you want to, you know, well, anyone else to suffer that. So there was a real sense of kind of, Real Christian spirit to him, actually, but no, um, it's not quite spelled out what it is that they do because they don't. Th- the, 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 you know, these are just faults through a, a faulty system, aren't they? Which log up results. It's not that they are deliberately fixed to be wrong, but never none of that's really um, really mapped out very clearly. But the the difficulty in watching it is that is that there is so little respite. You can yeah. imagine over four episodes, there are very <laughs> few moments where you think, ah. Oh, a shaft of light. Every no, time there's a shaft of light, something something yes. snuffs it out very, very yeah, quickly. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but uh, no, it was it was just too much for me because I'm going soft. The Word Podcast. 
What's wrong with being sexy? So, you know, I, I normally say you can quantify the, the, the qualities of, of rock stars on two axes, and one is talent and the other is charisma, you know, so it's quite simple. You know, so Oasis is 80% charisma, 20% talent. You know, BGs is 80% talent, 20% charisma. Yeah. You've got a new way of doing it, haven't you? You said Rod Stewart. The concept of Rod Stewart is 80% hair. I think it is. <laughs> I, think I can remember interviewing Rod Stewart in 1986 in Milan. And I said, how long are you going to keep doing Because it seemed like he was quite old at the time. How old would he have been? 40, 40? 41. Forty-one. He seemed quite old at the time. He seemed like a real senior citizen. You know, he said, "I'll keep doing it for as long as I've got the barnet." Yeah, and I thought, what a strange thing to say. And then I thought, over the years, I thought that's a lot of truth in that because Rod Stewart without the barnet doesn't work. It doesn't work. The concept of Rod Stewart doesn't work. And I watched a little bit on Jules Hootenanny on New Year's Eve, and I think, yeah, I think he's now eighty percent about hair, and it wouldn't work if he didn't have hair. So just pause for a second. We're Wherever you are listening to this podcast, walking the dog or, you know, whatever, let's all just close our eyes and imagine for a second Rod Stewart bald. Oh, my God. I know, it doesn't, doesn't work. There are people who've made that, you know, uh, cross that bridge very oh, successfully, aren't there? I mean, you know, um, Michael Stipe, okay, Peter yeah. Gabriel. Yeah, 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 I mean, they were the kind of performance that somehow didn't totally depend on but Rod Stewart without hair just doesn't work. James Taylor, James Taylor, James Taylor did too, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but, but it I, it's, and yeah. Peter Frampton actually, but then Peter Frampton ridiculously good looking. That uh, <laughs> so you can get away really, with it, But um, no, just tell me how much hair had been a part. I was thinking of various groups: the Beatles, the Birds, Stones, just the bands who <coughs> hair was such an important part of the package. Led Zeppelin, but the Walker Brothers. A lot oh, of that was God. about that. Oh, course, definitely about hair. Stone Roses. Uh, New York Dolls, Motley Crue, Hendrix. A lot of that. Hendrix experience, a lot of that about the look, the way they looked. Nirvana Culture Club. Well, it, it, let's go back on Hendrix for a second here. When Chaz Chandler brought him to the UK, he had to find backing musicians, and Mitch Mitchell and Noel Redding were recruited because they had perms. Yeah. So their hair kind of reflected his kind of corkscrew hair. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it was look, I, I, I'm sorry, you know, it's not a minor issue. It's huge. It's issue. a huge issue. It's, it's more important than le- electricity. It is. Music. The it's police, hair. something of other bands, Suede, the police, Duran Duran, Thin Lizzy. Oasis. 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 Alice Cooper, The Cure, Van Halen, Craftwork, even, I think. Craftwork, you know, a lot of it was about just that look, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, and uh, and the efforts, of course, that we notice in later life that they that they make to hang on to it. Yeah. It's, it's quite remarkable, you know, that the occasions of where we've seen hairlines recede and then we've seen hairlines... And then magically proceed. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Proceeding because, hairlines. yeah. Because these these people don't forget they spend a lot of their time um, being ministered to by kind of technicians who are specialists in in the art of their appearance, you know, makeup artists and and so forth for TV or of of live work, and of course those people 
will notice whatever recession is going on. They? They'll notice they'll notice it long before the person who's carrying the hair notices yeah. it. And they they will be the ones saying, you know, if you just did this and just did that, you know, yeah. you, 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 you can, can add a little you, volume here. Yeah. <laughs> add a little volume is very accurate. <laughs> Thicken this up. Because Springsteen uh, and uh, McCartney and Bono all look suspiciously thatched to me. I don't know. Yes, they've all. Yes, it's all. It, they all look a bit as if they'd, um, as if they'd fit into William Brown's gang, don't they? They've all, <laughs> they've all got the kind of slightly boyish fringe. Yeah, you know, they, yeah. yeah. Well, it was Elton is the classic case, you know. Well, that is a that's a syrup, though, I think. Well, it's beyond a syrup, isn't yeah. it? It's a kind of it's new technology. Isn't it? Yeah, it is. I think. Um, but he, yeah, he looks like a minor character in Jennings and Derbyshire, or you know, he looks like somebody whose mummy has just sent him a cake. Um, <laughs> but, so who's who's the owner of the best hair? In, in male male best hair in pop music is it Brian Jones? Yes, yes. Oh yeah, right. Okay. That, it's Brian Jones. Brian Jones. Because let's not forget the hair of Brian Jones is the hair that launched folk rock. Yes. The birds, the birds and all those other American bands, you know, I don't know, Charlatans or, you know, all those kind of West Coasty groups, the early Jeffs and Airplane, they completely modelled themselves on, on the look of Brian Jones. That's true. Birds, Bri- birds are so about hair, wasn't it? It's, so, it's not just about hair, Mark. It's about Brian Jones's hair. Yeah. You know, Michael Clark, the drummer, who couldn't really play the drums, was recruited because he had Brian Jones's hair. Uh, and Chris Hillman had Brian yeah. Jones's hair, didn't he? He and, did. You know, it was that curtain that came down there. So that when the camera got close and you were miming, you could look up from underneath the underneath the fringe. Your little fringe. And the girls would think it was lovely. Um, and it's interesting how many pictures you see, uh, you know, wonderful old pictures by Garrett Mankiewicz, people like that, of Ryan Jones having his hair, having his hair, you know, either trim, trimmed or attended to or shampooed. Or yes, whatever. lovingly combed by an adoring girl. Because that was the, forgive me, going back to the 1960s <laughs> for, for younger listeners, that was the big controversy about hair was, oh, good grief, they're, they're, they've got long hair, therefore they must be dirty and smelly, and which is a ridiculous thing to say. And so... They used to offer the defence, but we wash this all the time. You know what I mean? It's it's really attended to. And Isn't there a famous wa- clip of the Stones being introduced on the American show by somebody who suggests they might have fleas? Do you I, I, is it Dean Martin? Or Dean Martin. It's Dean Martin. And of course, and Dean Martin, he got some room to talk because his hair was constantly, you know, covered in slathered in brill yeah, cream or whatever, cream. whatever was the. Local equivalent. I see they're sort of talking to Brill Cream. Haven't they just phased it out finally? Oh, really? Yeah, which I thought was quite a significant moment. That Brill is. Cream is gone. <laughs> Whereas, you know, if you, it, the one way to characterize the changes that took place in the in the early sixties in popular music was the anti-Brill Cream, yeah, you know, thing. And prior to that. Well, you look at Elvis Presley. It's well, it's not Brill Cream, but it's whatever it is. 
And of course, we can't talk about hair in popular music without just once more pointing out the fact that, of course, Elvis Presley did not have black hair, <laughs> not naturally black hair at all. His hair was naturally fair. He dyed it because he wanted to look like Tony Curtis. That's right. There's a wonderful bit in your, in your quiz book, a question right. about that, isn't it? So what, there's the police who made it. Who, who's the blonde. natural blonde? Who's the natural blonde? You know, it was kind of. Sting, yeah, Debbie, De- Harry. De- De- Debbie Harry. Sting, Debbie Harry, Elvis Presley. No, Elvis Presley's natural. That's right. <laughs> Incredible. It, it's a good catch question. Yeah. So hair and rock, you know, uh, must write book about hair and rock makes note to self. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. Well, we're joined by uh, a birthday guest, Andrew Slattery. Andrew, lovely to see you and uh, happy birthday. And you, when was it? Has it, has it been? It, it, was, it was actually this day last week. It was the 30th of December. So it's exactly a week ago. How was it celebrated? Uh, it was very quiet, but I, uh, I have a twin brother and I called over to him in the evening for gift exchange. So that was good fun. Oh, I see. Oh, that's good. Wow. Whenever I hear these t- twins and birthdays, I'm reminded of an old pal of ours that Dave and I worked with on Q Magazine, a girl called Caroline Grimshaw, who came to work one day. Do you remember that day? Yeah. Very bad mood. And I said, what's the matter with you? He said, my brother forgot my birthday. I said, these things happen. He said, my twin brother forgot my birthday. Which <laughs> <laughs> so was, was quite funny. Yeah. But there we are. But Andrew, you have a, a, a topic to, to chuck on the conversational fire. Well, I, I, I just thought there was a, one of the gifts I got for Christmas was there's a new book about Withnal and I, and there's several people commenting about the use of, there's two Jimi Hendrix songs featured in the course of the film, and several people comment about how they're used to great effect, which they are. And it just struck me, you know, do, do you have any particular choices of existing rock and pop songs that were used to great effect in either films or TV shows over the years. That well, I've got, particularly I've well got a few. Shows. The one you're talking about in Withnail is, is the, the the really memorable one is um, where the wrecking ball strikes the, the building. Yeah. And it's a symbol, isn't it, of the end of the 60s and the start of the 70s because it's the New Year's just coming up. And it's Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower, which is absolutely one of the greatest moments of any film, I think. The obvious one for me, Lust for Life, with Renton in train spotting running down the street. Yeah. Um, on days like these, the Quincy Jones song, I think, in uh, the beginning of the Italian job, is like the first ever kind of very early example of a video, really. And the Blue Walls, Ride of the Valkyries, and Apocalypse Now. But my favourite is is in Oh Brother, We're Out There, where the three characters see the sirens appearing from the river, and they hear um, they hear Didn't Leave Nobody But the Baby, which is absolutely amazing. And kind of really, there was Emmylou Harris, wasn't it, Alison Krauss, and and uh, Gillian Welsh, Gillian and Welsh, the latter yeah. two, their careers were really, really boosted by it. It's an extraordinary moment. What do you yeah. think, Dave? Well, it, it's kind of interesting that um, I had I had almost had, had uh, an experience of choosing music for a film, and the guy I knew made a, made a, made a feature film, and uh, he wanted me in to help with the music. And so I was... I was there just suggesting loads and loads of music. And what I realised happens with films is most of the time when films are made, they haven't a clue what the music's going to be at all because it can't get cleared. That's why whenever you see a dance scene or a disco scene in a movie, the actors are dancing to nothing at all. 
They're dancing in total silence because that will be put on later when they've managed to either clear the music or not clear the music. And there are loads of really exam interesting examples of this in, in film history, like Everybody's Talking by Nielsen became huge through Midnight Cowboy um, because it was supposed to be The Lord Don't Live in New York City, which Nielsen had written for it, But by the time they got there, John Schlesinger got so used to everybody's talking, he said, no, just use everybody's talking, which has no relevance to the thing at all. But my one uh, proud boast in this whole thing is for this film, which was called Get Real, minor British film. It was about a, a schoolboy who had a gay awakening. And, and he had some scene where he, he went in a gentleman's lavatory <laughs> and they needed a piece of music in the background while he was kind of, you know, looking rather nervously around him to see who else might be in there. And and I suggested Love Is All Around by the Trocks. Oh, that's brilliant. And which at the time was no, I think number one by Wet Wet Wet, of course. And brilliant. and they managed to clear it and they used it. And so I'm proud to say that the only laugh in the film. It's a pretty straight film. Comes when people start to recognize this music, which of course opens with, I feel it in my fingers. I feel it. <laughs> <laughs> Because, and I saw this in the cinema, and it was literally the only laugh the film got. So tick one for me. Anyway, what's Very your what's your favorites? Well, there's a few I like. I like the use, even though it's not really. It's it's part of Travis's world because he's watching it on American Bandstand, but I always liked Late for the Sky and Taxi Driver. Oh, right, yes. Yeah. Travis watching TV. I thought that was great. Two that stand out for me are, and you've probably seen this, the end of the feature film of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, where they use a live version of La Mer by Julio Iglesias. <laughs> And yeah, what a yes, song. They do. it's the office party, isn't it? Yes. But you see, David, you're proving the point because you're laughing and that's actually an appropriate reaction because it's so cheesy and yeah. incongruous. You think this should never work. And they use it, as you say, to span the party and there's flashbacks and then all the resolution and how the story ends. And it's all put to Julio Iglesias and it, it is absolutely perfect. It just works brilliantly. Yeah. Um, and the other one I really like is there was a romantic comedy uh, about 20 years ago, 13 going on 30, where a 13 year old girl wakes up as adult Jennifer Garner. She looks like Jennifer Garner and she meets up with her old friend, Mark Ruffalo. And it's a very kind of pleasant, happy, romantic comedy. But there's a sequence in it because she's from the 80s. There's a lot of kind of 80s music on the soundtrack. Love is a Battlefield and Thriller and stuff like that. But mm. for me, the best sequence in it, and it's absolutely perfect, there's a scene in it where kind of everything has gone wrong for her in the adult world and she kind of retreats back to her family home. And there's a sequence cut to Vienna by Billy Joel. And it just spans her entire journey, kind of going back home, going to the family home, hiding out in the basement, seeing her parents, her mother makes her pancakes and it's so perfect. It's almost like it was done for the film. Yeah. And as you were saying, David, you know, you don't always know in dance sequences what they're going to use. And sometimes you see examples like that and you think they must have had an idea. We can use this. This would work well, but there's no guarantee you're going to get it. 
No, no. But no. but but there there are two that kind of stand out for me as being very effective. Going back to the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy thing, which I I know that scene, and uh, don't you think that they must have thought that they were going to get another version of La Mer, and and they couldn't get it, and therefore somebody you said. Wouldn't. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have gone for Julio Iglesias first. You wouldn't have thought so. You wouldn't but, have thought so. But yeah, because as you say, it's got that the party sequence, you kind of think, yeah, well, this kind of works as a kind of cheesy, funky. Is it the kind of thing they might have played? And does it sort of blend in then with the with the montage? I don't know. I think it works really well. Yeah, it does. But yeah. you mentioned there um about not knowing what they're going to use. I mean, one example which stands out, which I just mentioned briefly, is there was an indie film made, just apropos of dancing and not knowing if you're going to get the rights. There was an indie film made about 25 years ago called Buffalo 66 with Vincent Gallo and Christina Ricci. And, you know, it's kind of indie and arty, but it's pretty conventional. But there's one scene in it where they're in a bowling alley and Christina Ricci just sort of wanders off to the side and the camera follows her and the lighting changes and Moonchild by King Crimson kicks in <laughs> and she just starts doing this sort of soft shoe tap dance to Moonchild just to the first couple of minutes of it and then the camera pans back and the lighting restores and so on. And that's it and it's got nothing to do with the story. Now I saw this film in the cinema and then about a year later I, I was in remember them, the video shop. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah. I bought an ex-rental copy and the ex-rental copy was stopped mid-tape. And where it was stopped was at the tap dance sequence. Right. And I always figured someone rented this, they weren't mad on it. And when this sequence came up, they just thought, oh, for the love of Pete, and they just <laughs> abandoned the car. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> that's good. I'll tell you the other one that I really, that's always struck me. Um... You know the Lindsay Anderson film If? Sure. Um, Malcolm McDowell and so forth set in the public school. It's Sanctus, isn't it? Sanctus. Yeah. Sanctus. And of course, it's Sanctus from the um, Lindsay Anderson being kind of uh, public school Marxist. Um, It it comes from the, um, it's a Belgian, uh, Belgian Congolese recording of, uh, of the Mass by the troubadours of the Belgian king. And, of course, Belgium was was owned by the Belgian king, wasn't it? And, uh, and I just remember being in the cinema in that in 1969 or whenever it came out and being so struck. By, you suddenly get a shot of the school, the chapel. silence, yeah. and then you hear... Sang to... It's absolutely It's amazing. absolutely brilliant. And, uh, but I just... I just uh, Leave you with this. Have you read Woody Allen's autobiography? Yes, it's sitting on my shelf up there. It's a fantastic book. It's a really good book. And one of the things he says in there is my favourite bit of making films, which he does for his own benefit, is is when when there's a rough assembly of the edit and I take it home and I get out my records and decide how it's going to look better. (laughs) And that's the point about the use of the music. The music yeah. is there to make the film look better, you know, which I think is, is quite a profound thing about cinema, really. Yeah. Um, which you've given us some really good examples of there, and I'm, I'm sure people will have other ones that they'd like to 
throw in in future weeks. So, Andrew, belated happy birthday. Thank you very much. And Lovely. belated congratulations, David, on your University Challenge triumph. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I, as you can imagine, I'm being stopped in the street. Absolutely. <laughs> all the time. I would uh, imagine you would be. <laughs> very Thank, good. Nice to see you. Great all the best. Love to see the, all right. see the two of you. Thank bye. you. Bye. bye bye. The Word Podcast Walking the Digital Dog since 2007. Well, that's about it, Mark. That uh, was it. Uh, and what fun that was. What, what fun that was. Very enjoyable indeed. Uh, and, and how cheering to be doing this in, the, in England at the moment in this perpetual gloom and flooding and train strikes and stuff. It's nice to be able to sit here and. Think back to uh, merrier times. It is, absolutely. And how awful it would be if instead of being here, we're in Honolulu, Hawaii, (laughs) with a young woman in the hotel. That would be terrible. Where our producer is. Let's not dwell on that. Yeah, let's not dwell on that. Wearing a floral necklace and a pair of colourful shorts. (laughs) Yeah, so every time we think of Alex nowadays... We can hear the distant sound of surf and the yep. sound of a wine guitar. And we imagine him, him in a hammock between two palm trees. Yeah. With Dorothy, something out of a half a coconut, probably. With Dorothy L'Amour fanning him. <laughs> Just imagine that, listeners, as you go through the train strike and the, the British winter. Just think of Alex. He's suffering so you don't have to. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. <laughs>